Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at cerebral.com/podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Beginners to stage. Beginners to stage. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's backstage at Cry Havoc. I am your host, Lori Ann Davis. She, her, and today we're going to be talking about how to make murder funny. Because it is hilarious, apparently. And joining me to discuss this topic are David K. Barnes, Grace Knight, and Robert Valentine. Please, will you introduce yourselves with your pronouns and a little bit about you and your involvement in Cry Havoc? David, let's go first, since you are the seasoned backstager at this point. Hello, I'm David, the seasoned backstager. (laughs) He, him, the creator and lead writer on Cry Havoc. Lovely. Alphabetical. Grace. Hello, I'm Grace Knight, pronouns she, her, and I'm one of the writers on Cry Havoc, and I wrote the episode we're talking about today, episode 18. And Rob. Hi, I'm Rob Valentine, he, him, and uh, yeah, I often come last in alphabetical lists, as I do today. And, oh, 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 yeah, and I'm a writer, and (laughs) and and I've written some of Cry Havoc. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> We're also talking about episode 16 today, which is one of Rob's episodes. And on that note, episode 16 and 18, we've, kind of, we've talked a bit about a 17. We've had Grace on before. What happens in 16 and 18? Do you want me to do a quick summary or would you like to take your own episodes and 
tell everyone what they've just listened to, hopefully, really. Oh, do you know what? You, you go ahead, because it'd be embarrassing if I forget. <laughs> right. Episode 16. Oh, I should have written the titles down. That was silly. Oh, it's called Daggers. Yes, it is. Oh, it is called Daggers. So, Mark and Cleo have just finally got together. Cleo has a request of Mark that, or a suggestion, maybe, that he kills Gaius. And he doesn't want to. And then Cleo orders Charmian to. And then Mark talks to Fulvia, has a change of heart. Or at least is convinced by... I kind of think of him as having two Lady Macbeths. <laughs> kind of pushing him to, to do this thing. And even then it's not enough because he gets to the room, looks at Gaia sleeping, and he can't bring himself to do it. Charmian comes in and he inadvertently saves Gaius's life, which Fulvia is delighted about, naturally. <laughs> Also, Gaius is writing a speech during this, which I'm really, really thankful we do not have to listen to because it sounds like it would have been awful. (laughs) So 17, we've discussed last time. And in episode 18, Rescue Charmian is mounted, if I am correct. Yes. And a very important list is written. Well, two important lists are featured in episode 18. And uh, one may end up in the wrong place. I think that's enough of a summary, is it? Yeah, it works for me. <laughs> I regret yep. offering my services. <laughs> so, a little rewind before we talk about the episodes themselves. Grace and David, I know you haven't worked together before. Rob and David, do you have a previous relationship to this? And Grace and Rob, we've literally never met. Yeah, this is, this is our first meeting. It is. I've, I think we've been on the same email chains. That's literally as much as we can say. <laughs> I liked your tone. Professionally at warm. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I know of Rob through uh, Wireless Theatre and Big Finish. Indeed, I've written a script for Rob a, a few months ago, which was due about a year before. He <laughs> was very, very kind. Very kind indeed. But this is the first time I think we properly actually worked together. It wasn't cry heaven. And it was lovely. Yeah, this was, this was our first experience of working together. And it was so much fun. I mean, one of the many draws of saying yes was just to get to work with David and, and kind of hope it, was, hope it was a nice thing. Fortunately, yeah. it was, because if it hadn't been, it would have sucked. <laughs> and this would have been a really awkward Yeah, time. this would have been really, a really, really tense conversation with yeah, literal daggers being yeah. spat yeah. down, Skyped each other. But actually, it was huge, huge fun and uh, just a really happy writing experience. For me, at least. And David had more to do than I did. But I could just kind of waft in, do my bit, then kind of saunter back out again. Dave, David was kind of in it for the long haul. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was huge fun to do. Likewise, actually. I don't know if I said that on my last episode, but it was like you got exactly the right amount of support from David and from Amani, actually. And it was like I always felt very supported, but also massively free. <laughs> so I think particularly because my episodes like had to change a lot because changes were made earlier in the series and obviously mine were the latest Ah. ones that weren't literally written by David it was like (laughs) I just always felt so kind of respected as a professional and but also so kind of supported that if there was anything I wanted to touch base with I always could it was just it was just such a like pleasant writing experience and yeah it was just I had a ball it was great oh that's good so good job David I'm going to type up those quotes and frame them (laughs) (laughs) I'm very very glad to hear it genuinely very glad I I think the the role of a a guest writer on a show should be to come in have lots of lovely discussions write lovely scripts and then wander away hopefully without a care in the world and it's the job of the head writer to then have all the multiple breakdowns afterwards going oh my god how's this all working but it's no there's always lots of work to do later on when you're trying to make sure reference that has gone into this and that and the other thing 
but I don't like to bother writers with that. It's just, you know, you've given me a great script. I'm just going to turn those lines around. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. I would like to talk about the writer's room aspect of this, actually, because it's so interesting to me that, like, Rob's episode 16, it's the same scene, actually, as the opening of yeah. 18, right? Opening 17. And, like, yeah. the fact that... Oh, 17, sorry, maths. And the fact that you, Grace and Rob, hadn't, like, met before this to have an individual conversation is, is just mind-boggling to me. And, yeah, the fact that things would have changed... What kind of things were changing and how did that work? Oh, David let me see an early draft of Rob's script just so I like could see literally what was happening in the scene I was continuing to write, which I think was very it was very useful just from the perspective of not like losing my mind, but also <laughs> in terms of kind of trying to get a tone match because obviously it is a different episode, but if you're listening to them back to back it's going to sound really weird if you're not if our interpretations of characters are a bit off and obviously David is going to edit and oversee that anyway but like it's better to just like do the job properly the first time and in terms of changes I think so I wrote my outlines for the episodes did I even write the first drafts and then you were like oh yeah we've changed some things um sorry <laughs> yes I, I can't remember exactly I what, can't remember I, I, at what stage I remember laughing yes which <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think there was one. There were a few points I did change. I think actually the the point where Octavia found out that Charmian was working for Cleopatra changed. That did then have a knock on effect. I think on like these characters know this, this knows this. Yeah, so it was all stuff where like I'd I think like things where like the reveal scene had or hadn't been in my sections, and I had to just kind of rejig. But yeah, I mean it was always like super clear what I needed to change. And actually, because David is like very sweet and very keen for writers not to have to do any work, he was always like, "Okay, so I think <laughs> the minimal change you can do is, is probably like do this bit, like just change this scene a bit." And I'm just like, "But it really is literally my job, so it, it is fine." Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> I don't like people who work. I just think it's impolite. <laughs> I've got to say that I, at one point in this backstage series, have wanted to say that I really appreciate that Octavia knows that Charmian mm. is a spy from very early on. Yeah. So I think that was a great call yeah. because I think it makes their relationship more real. I hate it where you're like, you're supposed to be in love and really like each other and you've got this huge secret. Yeah, yeah. and also I think it's much more narratively interesting for Octavia because when she's totally floored by the assassination attempt, she's like, but you didn't tell me. And Charmian's like, yes, I really did. Yes. Like, and it really kind of illustrates Octavia's privilege as a character and her like inability to register that these things that she's doing are part of like real politics, that they actually matter and they're not just like her kind of having some japes. I remember actually that's of the effect of Rob's episodes as well because you've got the orgy episode and the episode 16 after. Yeah, me and Amani would often discuss when certain revelations should happen. I don't like too many to happen in one go. But I also, yeah, they just reached a point of Octavia and Shami are a couple together as of the end of the Pirates. And that was always baked in at that point. But I thought, you know what? And I rang up Tom and said, you know, you're writing the episode. Can you rewrite that last scene just one more time? But this time with the revelation of that she does say to Octavia, look, I'm a spy. Da, 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 da. And Octavia goes, and I thought, you know, actually, it'd be quite fun if Octavia went, oh, you're a spy. That's really hot. Yeah, sure. That's fine. And then we just <laughs> moved on from there. And I thought, it's a better way of expressing her her sort of distaste for politics and thinking, oh, oh, she's she's above it all. If she literally knows that her lover is a spy working for the opposition against her own brother and she doesn't feel the need to tell him or feel that that's even a conflict of interest until around at this point when it is. And then it just gives, I think it gives Octavia more 
rather than just oh my god you lied to me it's no you oh god I was also complicit in this and I'm angry at myself so I'm going to be even angry at you as a result of that and it gives Grace far more to do gave Rob more to do in his scripts as well and the Audi thing as well it's like well you know what's going on here why are you getting annoyed at me it's, uh, yeah, it just, I, like, I like to give actors more to do as well. Just go, here's some stuff. Here's for the acting. The old <laughs> acting. A bit of acting. But I also think, Chloe, you make a really good point that it, it really is important for our buy-in into that relationship. Because like, I have the same problem you do. If there's kind of a rom-com setup where one of them is lying to the other one about like, who they are or what they are or whatever, it's really hard to invest because you're just like, yeah. okay, but, you know, fundamentally you have lied about, like, a lot of quite important stuff. Yeah. You know, and, and I appreciate that, like, obviously that doesn't mean you're not taking the relationship seriously and all of that, but I just think it's just it's just better if you can just invest, especially if the drama is going to come from these people being forced apart rather than, like, internal relationship drama. And you, you are prevented from investing until both parties know each other properly. And until the revelation like that happens, you're just waiting for everyone to get up to speed with you and then you can invest. What was what is fascinating about Octavia is that it's no different from like being born into any kind of powerful family, a mafia family or something. Yeah, but yeah. She has all the information but she doesn't understand the implications of any of it. And that's a failure of understanding and comprehension on her part, not a lack of knowledge. Not a failure of knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. She's been so insulated. Okay, so let's get to what this episode has been titled for which is murder and assassination I'm making it funny <laughs> you know I've been thinking a lot about how to ask this but I guess my question is how do you do that because like it's horrible and how do you go about making a topic that is so repulsive in a way is that too strong a word no murder is awful and like the prescriptions oh sweet lord what I've learned over this series how do you go about inserting comedy into a situation like that? I think writers are quite distanced from the horror of murder because we kill off so many characters in scripts all the time. Oh, interesting take. I think all three of us have some experience writing like sci-fi or sci-fi adventure type stuff. And any given adventure story will have random people being bumped off by the monster of the week or some robot or whatever and then somebody would, it, there'll be a heroic sacrifice or something so murder and death happens quite a lot in, in writing so I usually assume it's quite funny and then have to remind myself it's <laughs> not but I, I think it's context isn't it it's, it's a context which a murder is done if it's a cold-blooded killing done seriously with ser- big serious intent it's not funny it's a sad but if it's a murder done in, in panic or if the person doesn't have the full context of what they're doing or don't know that they're ruining somebody else's better murder plot by trying to carry out their own that's that's quite funny because then you're seeing people fail to do something especially in a context where you'd expect they'd be very good at it because it's ancient Rome therefore mm. and you realize no actually it's, even Mark Antony finds it hard to stab someone when they're not on the battlefield and that's quite fun because it plays of our conception of who we think he is. Rob and Grace, are you happy being tarred with that brush of writers who are just <laughs> bored with murder now? It's commonplace. I'm, I'm actually not, really not like that. I, I have written a lot of <laughs> sci-fi because I love spaceships and time machines, but I'm very squeamish about killing people off and I will like, go to great lengths to avoid it. I think, for me, the whole purpose of episode 18 the whole way it's structured, because I reread it this morning, just to remind myself what I said, the whole way it's structured is basically building to that decision. And so, for a start, answer number one for how you make murder funny is put the murder in at the end, because then the rest of the episode's still funny. <laughs> um, so I think, really, the question is, having done that in, in episode 18, how do you make episode 19 funny? 
So if you think about how episode 18 is structured, it's got this big subplot, which is like pure japes. It's literally a heist with silly hats and makeup and mm. people a little bit out of their comfort zone. And it's like, let's go rescue your girlfriend. It's going to be really fun. And it's like just pure nonsense. But the A plot, it starts out completely light, like they're joking. They're like, oh, I wish we could do that. Oh, my God, who would you put on the list? Yeah, it starts off funny and then sort of gets more serious as it goes, where I think Rob 16 is sort of the opposite, mm. where it starts serious with people very seriously talking about death. And then when, once we actually get to it, it all goes wrong and it becomes very silly. Yeah, well, that kind of comes on to kind of my perspective. I mean, as a writer, you do kill a lot of people. But um, in fiction, oftentimes you're dealing with symbols and, you know, certain storylines and characters representing certain things. And the death of character is, in some ways, you know, you have a bit like a, a Jungian perspective on it. It can be the death of an idea, that kind of thing, which in some ways what stories do. But in terms of Cry Havoc and Daggers, it's not really about making the decision to kill people funny. It's just about highlighting that it's inherently ridiculous. Killing someone to solve your problem is the most permanent and stupid thing you can do. And people do it in real life. The whole idea of, you know, flying to the UK with, um, you know, some radioactive isotopes and, you know, (laughs) or some nerve toxin to bump off a journalist or two is stupid. But this stuff happens. So really, Daggers is about the ridiculousness of murder as an extension of policy. I think that's really what it comes down to and also these decisions are so domestic their decisions and the whole thing is about power Mm. but these decisions made in bedrooms and kitchens and that's kind of you know that's where these kind of decisions get made they don't get made in the meeting rooms or delegation chambers or anything like that they get made at the urinal you know and you know it's and, and that's how this level of politics and power operates and it's real and it's it's horrible and it's obscene and yeah you don't have to mine for the comedy really because it's there just just in the whole concept um, and that's what daggers is about i think it's a nice contrast that daggers is all about very much of the personal it's mark antony grappling with the idea of personally putting the dagger in personally carrying out his own murder which is when he, he then sort of prevaricates quite a lot. When he gets to Grace's episode, they're all talking about people they'd like to kill. It's more distance. They're talking about it as a, that's a thing that would be good to happen. And were it to happen, and he, at the end, they give it to some assassins to do, then they can just sit back and see what goes on. Mark finds it very difficult to do death when he has to personally do it himself. But it's much easier to talk about when it feels like a game. When somebody's saying, here's the dagger, go and kill that man, it's serious. When it's sitting around a table talking about it, you can disassociate yourself from the the effects of what your actions will be, which is, I guess, a lot of the things in you know uh, political decisions are made by people at a table or in a bar, and you can talk about it quite abstractly. But somebody somewhere is going to feel that the very real effects of whatever policy you've made that means they'll have less money in their pocket, or they can't afford that food, or they can't do this, or they're going to get bumped off by an assassination conspiracy that's gone wrong. And there's there's something different about that. They, they Gaius and, and and Mark and Epidus do lots of laughing in Grace's episode eighteen because it's oh it's all up there. Mark doesn't do any laughing at all in sixteen because it's people are sit standing right around and going go on then you personally go and do it and that's quite funny because the big general can't bring himself to go and you know enact what should be a perfectly simple assassination <laughs> plot and it, it, it totally fails and then there's a seriousness of. 
I suppose the contrast of asking somebody with great power to do something like that against asking someone like Charmian, who has no power at all in this, to go and do something that she clearly doesn't want to do. Mark could probably talk himself out of it if he wanted to. Charmian can't do that. She's got to go and try and kill guys because Cleopatra just told her to, and there is no choice to it. And that's a real sort of tragedy. So you can have your serious plot line of Charmian and your comedy plot line of Mark, which then hit each other at the end and turn into a punchline. But also in, um, in Mark Antony's case, he is a soldier. He's killed lots of people but he's not an assassin he's going into it thinking yeah i've I've killed before i've done loads it's it's a really simple thing to do but then he's faced with murdering a colleague in their sleep and it, it shows you what he is and what he isn't yeah but i think i think you make a very good point that like having episode 18 happen in the context of mark's failure of humanity essentially like he couldn't do it i think it really is very interesting that by the end of the episode he's sentenced 12 people to death as far as he knows you know yes and done it without a second thought and done it by you know just incrementally getting used to the idea and deciding that they you know they were worth it and the thing is as well i think it's worth remembering that both of these people have done this before like asked for people to be assassinated Mm. before like i mean got crassus and what's his name murdered you know, before the start of the series. Like, they're not very nice people and they don't have very clean hands. That's that's the other thing. I suppose it comes into, yeah, like, what well, you must assume that if you're going to murder a bunch of people, someone's going to want to murder you. So why not consider that? Yeah, that's the logical conclusion. That might actually be one difference between Mark contemplating assassinating Gaius and the assassinations later. The assassinations later are to help maintain the status quo rather than create a brand new unknown situation that Mark hasn't got any real idea what Mm. it'll be like him, you know, figuratively, not literally, in bed with Cleopatra and in charge. Yeah. And with the target on his back. And I think just in terms of, you know, the way we all behave, we all behave conservatively. I think we, we tend to do a lot more to maintain what we know yeah. go into a new realm of unknowns. Yeah, in episode 18 and beyond, they want to kill off a bunch of people to get the money to pay off soldiers so we can just, like, return to square one. Whereas, I suppose, yes, killing off guys creates a different... What does the future hold? How will Mark rule? What's going to actually happen? And that's quite frightening. If you're just trying to get things back to how they were or to square something off, that's sometimes easier. Unless you get it wrong and accidentally sign the death sentence for about 100 and 200 people. Um, because they're on Lepidus's birthday list. Mm. That was a ridiculous idea, which I, I mentioned it to a consultant like, at the very beginning, and they went, that sounds very funny. I went, okay, the consultant liked it, I'll keep it. Because I thought, that, that's ridiculous, but yeah. all right, yeah, it's the best way <laughs> yeah. I could think of. Having something like Innocent get in the way and cause great devastation, which is, I think, where we to take 19, which I think has just been released, which is the fallout of them realising what they've done and essentially panicking about it. And actually, I remember now, because this is one of the bits of plotting that I came up with very, very early on, is how we're going to end the series. And for some reason, I just watched Dr. Strangelove, which is a 1960s film about uh, an American general who sort of loses the plot, essentially, and sends planes with nuclear bombs into Russia to, to attack Russia and then instigate a nuclear war. Uh, it's a, it's a very dark satirical farce, but there is a point where all the all the the, the American presence and all the characters around him, all the advisors, are looking at this big map, and they can see all the planes going out to their targets, and they're wondering: Do we recall them? If this does happen, do we commit to it because they will attack us, or do we try to help the Russians to not do this? What do we do? Do we own this? How do we play this situation for maximum political effect and to keep our jobs? And that's the bit where I thought: Oh, what if? 
that the main characters in, in this have signed the wrong warrants and assassins are going out across the Republic and they don't know whether they should get them back, own up to it, not own up to it, blame someone else, and they just panic. And the longer they spend discussing it, the fewer options they will have. So I nicked that because writers like nicking things. And that's where that came from. <laughs> it's a lesser crime than murder, so, you know. Is it? Is it? <laughs> ah, OK. No, let's not go there. Let's not go there. A question that's just occurred to me that I haven't given you a heads up about, but I have faith. Why make murder funny? Ooh. Well, I'd say there's no need, because in a way it is already. It, it all depends on the, on the perspective you choose to present it in, because it's, it's inherently ridiculous and one of the most imbecilic things a human being can possibly do to another human being for multiple reasons. So you know, if, you, if, you, if you squint right, it's, it is funny. I have thoughts on that, but Grace, continue yours. Okay, well, <laughs> so one thing, I've thought of another answer to the how to make murder funny question, uh, which is like basic writing 101, um, focus on the perpetrator. Because yeah, it's, uh, it's really only funny for them. Mm. <laughs> and why make it funny? I think because it's quite difficult for humans to engage with the things that they don't like about humans in any kind of meaningful way. I think we don't enjoy, because we're basically empathic creatures, thinking about humans being brutal or cruel or barbaric. We don't like thinking about just all of this like horrible stuff. But I think humans are basically creatures of context. And I think that is the only explanation that it allows me to make sense of the vast, vast array of different behaviours that we're capable of. Mm. And I think the only way we're going to understand that is if we are willing to engage with the possibility that we were angels and the possibility that we were demons. And I think for that, you have to be able to engage with it. And so I think by making it funny, it's a way of engaging with it in a way that is emotionally a little bit less hard on the listener. And also I think... As Rob says, by exposing the ridiculousness of it, it kind of undermines its power a little bit, which is also an interesting way because there have been lots of studies that have demonstrated that the idea of violence in video games leading to real-life violence is sheer nonsense. However, I do think that we do have a bit of a tendency, particularly if we are a major HBO drama, to sort of glamorise the ability to be a like ruthless killer and that kind of thing. And I think the best weapon against that kind of like, yeah, but it's a bit cool, isn't it, kind of attitude is, is a send-up. Yeah. And so I think there's something quite powerful about taking someone with enormous power and just making them look silly. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think it was Francois Truffaut said that it, he thought it was impossible to make an anti-war film because cinema can't tackle the subject of war without making it look cool. Yeah. And the whole idea of murder, it's... Killing people is is a is a horrific thing, but there is there's a pathetic weakness in in people deciding to kill other people, and I think the, one of the places that comedy comes from in that is a degree of relief about that revelation, but also the the gap between the expectation and the result of someone in a comic piece deciding to kill someone and then the outcome, and because it's such an, a dark subject that relief is great partly it's the motivation of like i think murder in itself isn't isn't funny and a story for instance in which a very capable assassin finds their victim and bumps them off is is not funny that's just somebody you know that could be very suspenseful could be quite dangerous but 
I think Grace is quite right. So it's not funny. If you concentrate on the victim, it's not funny because all you'll see is either somebody who doesn't know what's happening to them or abject distress. So you concentrate on the person who's going to do the killing. If it's somebody who can do it perfectly well, that's still not going to be very entertaining. So it's the context in which the character is. If it's a person who has no idea what they're doing and what you're enjoying there is the sort of the relief of taking something which is very serious and finding a silliness in it, which is, oh dear, I don't know what I, I'm really scared. I'm, what if I ruin this? What if I get it wrong? What if something... That can be quite fun because it's something that we can relate to. Or whereas, if, say, if it's a powerful person doing it and then getting it wrong, we can sort of use that as a way to laugh at power. I think murder, like death generally, having just, you know, I came off a, a, a sitcom about funerals for four seasons where we try to make, get the laughs out of death there. It's just because it is one of those very big subjects about which we, would, we always have a slight sort of slight agitation. So the smallest smile or laugh can sort of give us a great deal of relief. Because I think, I suppose that's one thing about comedy and great deal of, you know, sort of murder and murder plots, both rely on suspense of a sort. Which is why I think as audiences we find, you know, so Alfred Hitchcock's movies were very entertaining because they were very suspenseful and we kind of like that. We enjoy knowing what's going to happen and hiding behind a pillow or laughing out loud. Comedy and, and uh, suspense and horror are all along the ca- same kind of line. It just depends on whose side you're on, whether it's slow or fast, but they always say that like, comedy is tragedy sped up. And I, yeah, I, it, it's, I think just the manner in which it's presented. I don't find distress very funny at all. I'm sure most people would agree, you know, the signs of, of distress aren't very funny. But if an assassin walks into, like, a room and it's somebody in bed and they go, oh, my God, and they start crying, please don't kill me, that's not funny. If somebody walks into your room with a sword, you go, oh, for God's sake, what now? That is funny. Because <laughs> it's, it, it's just a subversion of expectations and a different attitude. And then eventually, if that scene ends with the person in the room arguing the assassin out of them, saying, I have had it up to you, I've had a terrible day, I've done this, this, and this, and you're here, no, we're going to do it tomorrow, if you're going to kill me, do it tomorrow, I'm tired, I'm having to and kick him out. I find that quite funny and then you then you'd be with the assassin going how did I get argued out of that room I just all I had to do was stab him but I'm gonna have to go and book a room now okay fine I'm gonna go downstairs all right (laughs) that is correct hilarious but also part of the reason that's funny is because you're no longer dealing with a powerless victim yes Mm, yeah like so you you get the laugh out of the surprise of like I'm sorry seriously not another thing (laughs) but then you also you get the kind of relief of like, oh, okay, it's actually going to be fine, isn't it? Like, this person's going yeah. to talk the way out of this. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's, it's just the examination of power um, as to, is murder funny? No, not inherently. But it, as a prism to examine power, like Rob was saying, you know, the, the sheer need to murder someone at all indicates a very weird sort of psychological power that you've had to resort to that. So that could be ridiculous. But it depends on who the victim is and who the perpetrator is. A person with very little power setting out to murder somebody at the, like, you know, at the top of society is a different story from somebody with a lot of power picking up somebody who has no power at all. And it's how murder reflects that imbalance and then, yes, the subversion of expectation. And say, as somebody, like in all those horror films that have like a serial killer hunting after somebody at the end and they're using their ingenuity to try and get away are suspenseful, they're not funny. But there are plenty of films with assassinations and murders or even horror comedies which get lots of laughs out of a serious situation in which the characters are just responding in a way we're not used to seeing. Usually, irritation. Yeah. <laughs> irritation is hilarious. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Something else I think is important, and I haven't decided in which direction, is that the victims they're talking about killing are a bunch of senators we know to be corrupt. Yeah. Or at least we know to be presented by the narrative and by Gaius and Mark as having failed morally. Yeah. 
and they're characters we've not really met that much. We've seen a couple of centres, but we don't spend much time with them, so they're quite faceless. So actually the only thing we know about them is that they're rich, yeah. which I think is obviously a pretty good cipher for power, so that makes them a bit less sympathetic. Yeah, I think if it were, let's sit around, let's see if we can like kill off all the people in, in the poor quarters and the slums, that I don't think there'd be any way in which we'd be going power. But then we wouldn't be going that way anyway, because it's a bunch of, you know, some people whose job it is to tell all these people just blow them in the Senate, you know, to try and work with them on a solution, and nobody can. I think, well, let's just kill them. Yeah. And because they're all very rich people, as you say, who are corrupt, and who we've only seen, the only times we see them in the series is usually to obstruct plans which might have otherwise worked, <laughs> were it yeah. not for self-interest. What can be funny, though, is if you're having some kind of policy, economic policy meeting, and then the decision to murder the poor... <laughs> is suddenly funny. Oh, hilarious. Every time. That's a Mitchell and Webb sketch, isn't it? The sort of like, kill the poor? Are you... What? I think one way to mind the conflict, there is the the killing side, which is the delicate side, but the the place to mind the arch ridiculousness of it is the decision to kill and the act are the two... They're the two far ends of making murder funny. Yes, because the joke then is on the person who's coming up with the idea. It's like the joke isn't that it would be funny to go and destroy these people. The joke is that there are people in society who you can bet are at the top exactly, of the chain yeah. going, oh, it's secret. I could. So it's a joke about the horrendous moral vacuity of people in, the, in that society, but it's not a joke about the murder itself. Absolutely. I also think there is a kind of knee-jerk response. Like Every time my partner comes in and tells me something the Tories have been up to recently, I laugh. Yes. It's not exactly that I think it's funny. No. <laughs> yeah. But it's sort of almost like incredulity. Like, yes. Because obviously if he's bothered to mention it to me, it's because it's like wild by the standards of what I already expect from Tories, which is like pretty <laughs> out there. So it's like, yeah. okay. Almost if you don't laugh, you'll cry kind of yeah, vibe there. Yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah. Yes. Although, yeah. God, I hope that's not the note we've hit with this show. <laughs> 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 right, I, I'm going to wrap us there. <laughs> Because it's not. <laughs> Thank you so much, all three of you, for joining me for this. This was very, very interesting. And we have run long again, and that is all my fault. I'm sorry, but I'm not really, because I enjoyed it. So thank you, audience, for listening. I hope you enjoyed, and I hope you listen to the final episode. It should be coming out next week, so I hope you're all excited for that. And I will say goodbye, because we will be back with Backstage next week. And would everyone like to say goodbye with me? Goodbye. Bye-bye. Backstage at Cry Havoc is a podcast distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. It is directed by Armani Zardo, produced by Laurie Ann Davis, with executive producers Alexander J. Newell and April Sumner. This episode was edited by Laurie Ann Davis and Catherine Vernella. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.